This episode of the Dirtbag Diaries is brought to you by Patagonia, makers of high-quality clothing and gear for outdoor sports, world travel, and daily lives lived in harmony with nature. Visit them on the web at patagonia.com. From a distance, John Bombard appeared to be a very serious 17-year-old. He walked the halls of our high school wearing a scowl and carrying 40 pounds of textbooks. He was a gifted student and athlete, but he was never a teacher's pet or the coach's chosen one. If he didn't know you, he wasn't going to say anything to you. But if you were lucky enough to have been one of Bombard's friends, you were certain of a couple of things. First, underneath that stern demeanor, he was one of the goofiest, funniest, unique people you could ever meet. Second, when it came to his family and friends, his loyalty was unflinching. It was like gravity, absolute like a law of nature. We went to smart kid boarding school. It was the kind of place where they made us dress like we were headed for Wall Street. We went to school on Saturdays. The rule book was at least 200 pages thick. And stress relief came in a single form, laughter. I'm still not totally sure how Bombard and I became friends. Certainly we were pretty different. He had a reputation for mauling people in the hockey rink and wanted to follow his father's path into the armed services. I collected rare bootleg concert tapes and preferred cross-country skiing to Saturday afternoon hockey warship. But somehow, Bombard and I became friends. We were part of a small group of about 10 guys. Some of us could have hung out with the jocks, others could have been nerds or stoners, but we seemed bound together by laughter rather than touchdowns or bags of weed. I don't really remember ever sleeping, but I remember my friends, and I remember laughing a lot. When we graduated high school, I went west. Bombard played two years of semi-pro hockey before enrolling at Holy Cross in Worcester, Mass. We saw each other a few times during those years, talked on the phone at holidays, but like a lot of high school friends, we were headed in different directions. In his senior year at Holy Cross, Bombard began having back pain. His hockey team trainers blamed it on a slip disc. It got worse, and by Christmas, Bombard could feel that he was losing control of his legs. After a few weeks of tests, biopsies, and anxiety, Bombard learned that he was facing what would likely be a losing battle. A particularly virulent tumor had wrapped itself around his spinal cord and was creeping upward. He could expect to lose control of his body one function at a time. Because of the proximity to the spine, treatment was close to impossible. So John would basically have to will the cancer out of his body. To his friends, a bunch of guys in their early 20s, it didn't seem all that impossible. More than once I remember someone saying, if anyone's stubborn enough to beat it, it's Bombard. That summer, around the 4th of July, I disappeared by myself into Washington State's enchantments, a rugged section of wilderness, jagged granite peaks, and rolling plateaus. I was 24 years old, the strongest physically and mentally I have ever been. Halfway through the day, I was climbing Prussic Peak's West Ridge, a classic Fred Becky route up a classic Northwest Peak. I stopped in my tracks. In front of me, to the right of the ridge, splitting this bone-white face of granite, 
were three tiny cracks no bigger than the width of a finger. They cleave the mountain, the way lightning divides the night horizon. Here was this incredible, improbable looking mountain of the most prominent face of Washington's most photographic peak. It was both beautiful, terrifying, and inspiring. It looked perfect, and it hadn't been done. It was clear that I had been given a gift. I sat with my feet dangling off the West Ridge, tracing the possibilities through my mind. When I returned to the car, I was still smiling. It had been a perfect day. But as soon as I saw the voicemails pop up, I had sensed what had happened. Bombard died watching the Yankees game from the hospital bed in his childhood home. His father was right beside him. There was no dramatic moment. Bombard was there one second and gone the next. I drove straight back from Leavenworth, and two days later, I was on a red-eyed plane to New York City. By morning, I was listening to the clatter of the Long Island Railroad. I remember a lot about that day they'd buried Bombard, walking in late to the ceremony, the banter of friends who haven't seen each other in years, accidentally leaving a fingerprint on John's coffin. Afterwards, we regrouped at the Bombard's family home. We played horseshoes, drank, told stories, drank more, and then told more stories. And I remember this certain moment, where one of Bombard's closest friends, a guy named Kleiman, was being hounded by everyone to tell a particularly funny Bombard story. And he's there, blushing and laughing. A dozen of us are heckling him, and he's hemming and hawing, and he says, I'll never forget it. Ivan says, if I tell that story, Bombard is going to kill me. And everyone paused for a second. It had to be the only time anyone in that group ever noticed a grammatical misstep. And then I remember thinking, here I am, surrounded by some of my closest friends, people who helped build me, who helped shape my idea of right and wrong, and many of these people I hadn't seen in years, and in the morning, we were all headed our separate ways. These were people who helped shape me, yet on a day-to-day -day basis, I barely thought about them anymore. I had already started to forget them, and they were alive. Sometime in the middle of the night, I slunk away from the laughter and tears and crash-landed on Bombard's lawn in a tired heap. I lay there for a moment too tired to crawl inside, stared up at the stars, and refused to believe that I would forget my friend. I knew what I had to do. It was all I had to offer. It was my own awkward prayer. When you see Prusik, it just makes you want to climb it. It's a beautiful outline. If you look up at it, it almost looks like a king. Like you can see there's like a crown and a nose and an eye. And so it just, it changes like any mountain. But in particular, I feel like because it's always, the shape is always set against the sky when you're looking up at it. And so it just makes it that much more striking. Beck and I recruited our longtime friend and partner, Aaron Webb, for what we thought would be a reconnaissance mission. On that first trip, the biggest question was whether the final pitch was even possible. What looks like a finger crack from a distance could easily have been a shallow seam. We climbed the 5-7 ridge route to the summit tower. Beck had lowered me into the final, breathtaking pitch. I almost gagged from the exposure. It was steeper than I had ever had imagined, but the crack was perfect. It accepted gear, and after plucking away at the lichen, and the tiny flakes wedged in the crack, I could wiggle my fingers into the fissure. 
It was all there. By midsummer, Prussic Peak's daunting southwest face appeared on the catalog cover of one of the industry's biggest climbing companies. The striking headwall cracks were clearly visible, and stronger, more experienced climbers showed up with the hopes of climbing those final pitches. They started 30 feet to the right of our infant line, but they never found a path into the headwall cracks. We kept at it. We slogged gear up the grueling, day-long approach. One trip we ran out of food. While the line looked flawless from a distance, we discovered that the steeper sections were covered in a thin exoskeleton of tiny crumbling flakes. I mean, it's the kind of thing you'd put your foot on and it'd be like, gone, you know. Your foot slipped off because, it's, you know, these little three-layer chunks of cornflakes have just slipped off the granite. But underneath, I mean, it's just it's stellar. I mean, it's beautiful, solid granite. This was like art, and we were prepared to suffer for it. At the beginning of every new pitch, we looked up and launched ourselves upward in a fit of screaming, swearing, and outright prayer. Feet skated across lichen. Tiny flecks of granite rained down like snowflakes, but we hung on. Every time one crack disappeared, another began. Face holds appeared in blank sections. Each pitch got progressively harder and even more improbable. By the end of the first summer, we had established four pitches, gained what felt like a year's worth of experience, and wanted more than ever to put up a route worthy of Bombard's memory. Next year, we would be strong and bold enough to free climb it. And if we weren't, well, we would get stronger and come back again. It was only a matter of time. That was four years ago. Now it's late August in the enchantments, and the steady rain is close to turning to snow. We huddle beneath a large boulder, trying not to talk about bailing. Since those initial trips, we've managed just five days on the route. Injuries and career moves have kept us away. We left the Northwest. Beck and I got married. But none of us forgot Bombard's route. It was ready to go. Pictures of Prusik adorned the walls of our offices and the sides of our refrigerators. Spirits were high. Then in late May, I fractured my knuckle and badly sprained my thumb. For two months, climbing was out of the question. By the time my hand healed, I had 15 days to prepare for the hardest pitch of my life. I was struggling through 510 routes at the local climbing gym. I hadn't let a pitch outside in three months. Overhanging 513 finger cracks, 700 feet off the deck, seemed like a miraculous leap. On the first clear day, we climbed the West Ridge. Becca lowers me into the last hundred feet of Bombard's route to see if I'm even strong enough to top rope the crux section. For 45 minutes, I pull as hard as I possibly can, until blood drips from torn cuticles, my rib cage aches, and I can barely hang on. It's painfully obvious to all of us, I'm not strong enough to hold up my end of the bargain. That night, we resign ourselves to completing the first one-day ascent. It's clear that I'm not strong enough. And somehow, once I say that, it feels like a weight has been lifted. Over the next few days, we establish a few pitches on a small crag above a deep, crystal-clear alpine lake. We lounge on boulders until the heat pushes us into the bone-chilling water. We fish. We climb Presick's classic south-face route. 
We read books and play cards in the afternoon sun. We save our route for our final day. Becca starts the morning by grabbing the gear sling and taking the first 160-foot pitch. For her, it's a bold, confident move that leaves both Aaron and I inspired. At the root's first crux, she barely pauses, places protection, and cruises upward in quick, fluid motions. It's over in a few minutes. Yeah. Yahoo! It felt good. How long have you been thinking about that? Since we started it, that's always been my pitch. There's a pitch I'm gonna do, that was my pitch. But I decided this morning. Aaron takes the next lead through a series of overlapping roofs. You got it, Webster. Just slow down, keep breathing. You got this. Come on. The next pitch is mine, and right from the start I'm afraid. A feeling that I'm not accustomed to when it comes to climbing. It's a strange feeling repeating these pitches. Like moving in stereo with a younger, bolder, stronger me. Four years ago, I remember leading this pitch and placing a bolt. I regretted it. I thought to myself, I could have done that pitch without it. Now, I'm thankful that the 24-year-old me was kind enough to pause to hand drill. It's still run out, even with the bolt. In 800 feet, this short section of shallow granite wrinkles is the only place where the granite is still flaking and brittle. There are only two pieces of solid protection in 40 feet. A fall in the wrong place would likely mean an injury. Above that lies the long, flawless cracks that lured us here in the first place. The wind is building, and on the horizon there are storm clouds. Completing the route in a day hinges on the next few minutes. This is supposed to be my pitch, but I pawn it off on Aaron. My hands are shaking. I can barely watch as Aaron works through the delicate moves. Above him waits 15 feet of hard climbing that should be my responsibility. A second later, his feet skate across the coarse granite, and he is airborne. It's a big 30-foot fall. The force slams Becca into the belay. I can see Aaron's shoulders slump in disappointment and exhaustion. My feet just slipped, and then I was off, winging through the air. It seemed like a while before the rope got tight. Right now. Utterly exhausted. <laughs> it's tempting to tie our two ropes together and begin the rappels to the ground, to bail, to be done with this. It's been a long time since I've been this afraid, almost paralyzed by dread, but I try to look at it rationally. There's two hours of daylight, the weather is holding, and there's no overwhelming reason to retreat. The last obstacle isn't the final 160 feet above me, it's my fear. I think about Bombard, about that memory. I think about the 24-year-old me, strong, optimistic, and wanting to believe that his friend's memory will never fade. And before I know it, the words are out of my mouth. I'll try it. desperately try to place gear and keep moving upward before my legs start quivering with fear. Eighty feet later, the winds let loose. I've been so focused on this final section that I failed to look at the deep wall of cloud building at the valley's head. 
Becca and Aaron are yelling at me, but I can't understand them above the roar of the wind. Twenty feet higher, I climb above the protection of the mountain's west ridge, and the wind doubles in force. The gusts send me spinning in my aid-climbing slings. My helmet floats slightly above my head. Vapor trails are beginning to form in long, snaking tendrils, and the distinct, powerful smell of snow is in my nostrils. I'm through the hardest section, but with the gathering storm and darkness approaching, the rappels down could easily turn into a mess of stuck ropes. Becca and Aaron are pleading for me to come down. We have no rain gear. Another blast of wind knocks me off balance and punctuates the obvious. Fifty feet shy of our goal, it's time to go down. I retreat back to a bolt. Hanging from a single carabiner, I sway like a pinata. Twenty minutes later, we hit solid ground. Exhausted and laughing nervously, we look up at our route, a Bombard's route. We hadn't come close to freeing it. Plan B, the first one-day ascent, ended 50 feet shy. It's a moment that easily could have been colored by disappointment. Yet all of us feel good, like our day had been defined by our efforts and our friendship, not by our successes or our failures. I'm not sure if Bombard's route will ever become a classic, or if I will ever free that desperate 20 feet of granite that captured my attention at 24. But at 29, I do know that it was Bombard's last gift to me as a friend. A point of reference that has guided Becca and Aaron and I back into the wilds and cemented lifelong friendships. The photograph of Prussic Peak will always remain above my desk, right alongside the one of John and I frozen in time after our high school graduation. It's a prayer for a friend that will never fully be whole. In the day's last light, we pack gear hop across the Taos slope towards camp and laugh. Becca suggests that we find a project a little closer to the road, but we all know that at one point or another, we will be back here, to be held in the trance of flawless stone, friendship and memory. Shafts of light escape the gathering storm clouds and spotlight the granite wonderland. We stumble towards sleeping bags and the quiet end of another day, roped to one another, tied to both the living and the dead. A big thanks to the people of Patagonia for funding independent voices from wild places. Check out Patagonia's latest Arctic National Wildlife Refuge initiative at patagonia.com. In particular, a big thanks to Casey Kurnosnowski. Music today by Loquat, Amy Milan, Jody Martin, Numbers, and Manu Chow. For more information on the music, visit our website at www.dirtbagdiaries.com. If you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word. The Dirtbag Diaries is driven by people like you, and the more the merrier. Stay tuned in the coming months. We've got some awesome stories for you. I'm Fitzka Hall, and you've been listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. Oh, my son. Oh, my son.